What's good? This is Kelsey, founder and fearless leader of Dope. You are zoned in for an episode of Soberpreneur, a look at what happens when we deal with our past shit, talk openly about that shit, and go do other awesome shit. On this episode, hear from me and fellow sober founder, Michelle Pusateri. We talk about life in the entrepreneur fast lane with her business, Nana Joe's Granola. It's real talk from us about our personal journeys into sobriety and what we do today to help others who need it. And it's honestly just good to catch up with you. So this should be really fun. <laughs> I know you got married. You bought a house. You're an oh aunt. Oh my God. I know. There's a lot <laughs> happening. <laughs> you think? Oh, did I forget? Did I forget 30 under 30? I know. Crazy. <laughs> Amazing. So crazy. That was awesome. I got the email this morning. So I found out along with the rest of the world. Pretty cool. That's amazing. Yeah. Thank you. I was like, I got one more year to make it in. So I hope it works out. <laughs> 29 in February. So I'm really coming under the, under the gun here. <laughs> I'm so excited to have you. A friend of mine and just other kick-ass sober founder uh, that I met while I was in San Francisco. Thanks for coming on. Definitely. Awesome. So for those who don't know or can't tell by the name uh, with granola in it, what is Nana Joe's granola? (laughs) Hold on real quick. I just took a sip of water. No worries. Um, It is a granola company based in San Francisco, and we do gluten-free paleo-type granolas. That's awesome. When did you start? You know, you hear paleo and everyone's like thinking within the last year or something, all the crazes came out, but how long have you been in it? Since 2010. Awesome. That's amazing. And I've been doing it. I've been doing paleo now for two and a half, three years. Okay, cool. Amazing. But it's been gluten-free since the start? It has. Yeah. Very cool. Um, so why granola and specifically about gluten-free, what was the demand you were seeing or kind of what led you in that direction? I had, I had recently become gluten-free and I thought, you know what, it's, it's probably um, going to happen to more and more people. Mm-hmm. And I decided, Hey, why not? I would try it out. And I really love the recipe that I came up with it. To me, it didn't taste gluten-free and it didn't have all those like fillers and didn't try and mask or be like anything else that was, that wasn't gluten-free. Mm-hmm. So I decided, Hey, you know, this is my opportunity to do it. And then um, you had another question. I'm sorry. What was it? Oh, no worries. Yeah, just why, you know, why granola? That was really it. And why gluten-free? But you answered all Ah. that in one. You're, uh, (laughs) yeah, nailing it. And you are ultra legit. You're calling in from the kitchen today. So any background noise you guys are hearing is that amazing granola being made uh, real time. So who is is Nana Joe? How did this name come to be? Uh, You know, is Nana Joe a real person? Tell us the scoop. So Nana's my grandmother. Joseph's the name of both of my grandfathers. So it's actually two different people. Um, and then just the granola, of course, is is trademark stuff. So I had to be called Nana Joe's granola. Nice. That's awesome. Did you like grow up baking with them or making anything with them? Or did they love granola? Or was that kind of uh, just an ode to ode to them as people? You know, we were always in the kitchen growing up and that's, that's kind of where I always felt like I was home and where I felt like I was the most comfortable was in the kitchen. So, um, I cooked with my grandmother a little bit when she Mm -hmm. lived in Oak Brook, Illinois. I cooked with my uh, other grandparents in Utah and then I cooked with my father a lot. That was like our special time was in the kitchen on the weekends. 
Oh, that's so awesome. It's like cooking with grandparents is something else, especially when you're young. I remember just being like, how do you know all of these <laughs> recipes? What like information has been bestowed on you in your lifetime that you could make everything with your eyes shut? No recipe book. And I'm over here like quadruple measuring everything to make sure I'm following it. Perfect, I know. You know. Isn't that crazy when you used to watch yeah. them and be like, whoa, how do you remember all that? I used to watch my great grandmother, um, she was around 90, 92 when she passed away. But I think she would get up in the middle of the night and make bread. She was supposed to be bed bound, but that was like her thing. She would mm. wait until everybody was asleep and get up and make bread. And we'd have fresh baked bread in the morning. Uh, but she remembered everything to a T. Like she would just like put stuff in, no recipe, nothing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. My Nana, the same story with like shortbread. It's like she had made it so many times in her life that it was really just a recipe in her, her brain at that point. Uh, I have some scribbled notes on one of her old cookbooks that I, I think resembles what she would make in the end, but <laughs> yeah, I think she had her own version. So that's um, awesome. yeah. So you've been, uh, on this grind for nine years, which honestly just deserves like a round of applause because <laughs> I'm almost three years in and I feel like I might die some days. So it's just incredible to watch, uh, you know, you have made it so far into this. Um, I'm sure over these nine years, you've had an oh shit story. What's kind of your biggest, oh my God, the ceiling is falling, the sky is falling kind of moment. I, I think that moment probably happened last year in October when I lost my um, operations manager and fulfillment person. And yeah. I was, I remember the, that. Yeah. I was in the middle of a trademark lawsuit and it was just like, Oh my God. And I had to pick myself up off the ground and be like, okay, we're going to continue to do this. And I'm yeah. just, just going to put my head down and grind. And I think I worked seven days a week, 15 hour days for like four months straight. I was just like yeah. going for it and trying to figure things out. And make the, you know, the production in the kitchen more efficient and do some work on the operations and on our supply chain. So, I mean, all in all, it was a blessing in disguise, but it also was like one of the hardest moments and times of my life that I've actually come up, you know, out the other side and been like, oh my God, I can't believe I got through that. Yeah. Kind of like a, you can do anything feeling where you're like, man, if we made it through that, like (laughs) the next thing just doesn't seem as painful. (laughs) I know. Now if I can just get technology to work with me, I'd be much happier. I'm so terrible. That's way too much to ask. I know, right? (laughs) It's constantly Um, changing and I'm old and it just doesn't work. (laughs) I'm old and I'm tired and I don't want to learn it. Yeah. Well, it is always changing. That's true. And now they just release stuff without any like information or tutorials. They're like, good luck. Click around. You'll figure it out. <laughs> Maybe you won't. I know. Uh, it's QuickBooks like natural online. selection for technology. <laughs> I know. QuickBooks Online just recently did that. And I was just like, what? What? Where is everything? But why? Yeah. Yeah. yeah they're fine. like, this will be great. <laughs> oh. Um, the trademark thing, I don't think I actually knew that was going on uh, yeah. during that, that time period. A lot of people don't put much thought into trademarking stuff. I mean, even for me, it took a while to start doing additional trademarks beyond just, you know, dope as a mark. Um, yeah. What happened in your story? I think it's good awareness for people to know that, like, it can actually go down. Oh, I think, I mean, it's gone down for a lot of people that I know, actually. And I think if you're going to start a business, hire a lawyer and spend that $2,000 to actually get trademark right from the get-go so you don't have to worry about it. It was, I mean, I I signed a a ton of NDA disclosure, so I really can't talk about Mm. it a lot. But there were two different um, trademark lawsuits, and we settled both of them. And it was just really, really hard to to go through 
I think if just you're taxing not, and distracting, taxing, distracting, and also costly. I mean, if you yeah. look at, if you look at over, you know, a hundred thousand dollars and lawyer fees and you're just like, Oh my God, it could yeah. cost, it could cost up to 500. It costs up to a million. You don't know. Yeah. You don't know how hard somebody wants to fight. And it's pretty much all up to the person that actually wants to keep their name mm-hmm. and doesn't want you to infringe in any way upon it. And I think that that mm-hmm. was, that was definitely a lesson for me because we went through one and I was like, Oh yeah, that was, that was super easy. And it was with a big, big corporation. And I was like this, you know, it's, it's not really that big of a deal. And then a smaller company came along after that and was just like, Oh yeah, by the way. And I was just like, Raising I thought, hell. I, I, thought yeah. I was, well, I was trademarked. So that's another thing that people don't understand. Even if you are trademarked, people can still come after you. Yeah. Like they can start using it. It's up to you to go and file something. Like we yeah. found a couple of people, there's like uh, a few places using dope, like a bakery and, you know, kind of tangential stuff, but it was enough that, you know, I sent them a letter and just said, Hey, we have, you know, dope trademarked all this, but it's up to them to say, okay, we'll change it. So for some people they wrote back right away being like, Oh, no problem. Like we're early on, like we'll change the name. Didn't realize it. And then others like just no response and silence. And, um, yeah, you have to make the call of like what you're willing to fight for, what you think is going to be a potential detriment to your brand in the future. 100%. 100%. I mean, we could have, we could have started over and, and rebranded and, and done another trademark, but it just wasn't worth it for me at that point. I mean, mm-hmm. the amount of money it would have cost for us to, to rebrand was just too much. Yep. Um, so uh, I'm sure amongst this, any other tips for aspiring entrepreneurs, you know, what would you have just killed to know back when you're getting started or um, even just a few years ago? Talk to I think, that, Michelle. yeah, I, I mean, I think that the biggest thing that and piece of advice that I would give is just to have a plan, have a plan, know your exit strategy, know what you want from your business from the beginning, figure that mm-hmm. out, have, have some sort of, um, have somebody helping you, maybe an accountant, CPA, financial advisor on how to build your business around margins and figure that out a lot sooner and make sure that you're actually looking at that on the daily instead of trying to figure that out after, after you've already developed all your recipes. I think yeah. Or all like, your investments already in. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think the planning stages are tough. Sometimes I give people the advice of like quit freaking planning and just jump. But I think there's a middle ground um, to making sure you're actually going to do something that's profitable or that there's a real market for. I hear a lot of people talking about ideas and I'm thinking, has anyone ever asked for that? You know, have they yeah. ever actually wanted it? <laughs> um, so you can save yourself a lot of headache, um, avoid just believing your own, you know, gut sometimes and really doing some low cost market research to see if it's a true need. Um, and then, right. yeah, the margins have to line up for you to go after it because it might be a need, but no one's done it or solved it yet because it's so uh, such low margins. Right. And, and I can I think the, I think you're right about the planning thing. I think over over planning and over like having everything perfect once you hit that market mm-hmm. is is too much. I mean, like I think if you have a product, you have your trademark, you have a plan on, on what you want, you have your margins built around that plan. I think those are the basics, and then once you go from there, you can start worrying about your brand identity, what's your target market, all of that stuff. You don't have to know that out the gates. The, the main thing that you need to do is test your product on the market. 
if you're a CPG yeah. company and you want to do a 500,000 run of a little snack, like a vegan snack, um, don't do it. Make it all in-house, rent a commercial kitchen, do it that way. Because once you get that recipe right, that's the time to go after a co-packer. I don't think it is from the beginning, unless you have a food scientist helping you and you've had them test the market as well. I think mm -hmm. it's super important for you to just kind of hit farmer's markets or you know, the smaller side bodega grocery stores that are in your neighborhood and see if people actually like the product. Because yeah. if, if they don't, then you have to go back to the drawing board. And if you've done a five, you know, $500,000 run or 500,000 piece run, you're stuck with that product. And then you have to start all over again. And then you're also going to try and sell it. So you're putting that product out there that people aren't going to necessarily like to begin with. And then you're going to try and put a better product in that packaging and hope that people in hopes that people buy it again. I don't know about you, but when I try something and I spend money on it, and it's not what I'm expecting or what I want, I'm really, really not going to spend money on that product again. Or that brand sometimes. Sometimes right. they have halos where you've really tarnished the brand, so you have to be careful about anything you put out. It's going to be a representation of your brand for the long haul. I think, um, I think about this pretty often. Retail is so difficult running the you know, store that we have um, now here on the Vegas Strip. Uh, and the one we had on Pier 39, you know, it's just incredibly difficult compared to some of the business I was doing at the wholesale or even in the catering world. Um, however, like that direct access to customers is really valuable. And from day one, my model was really kind of the food parks and popping up and doing like, you know, small catering things here and there and getting that real time feedback from customers really helped shape what the dope recipe is today and which yeah, flavors we into and stuff. Um, so now as we've gone towards wholesale, it was very clear which four would be like our core four flavors to move forward with in wholesale. Whereas if I didn't have the store, you know, would have been a lot of like surveys needed and, and other things, but we could really <laughs> look at the sales to, to figure it out. So I, I kind of got, well, I wouldn't even say the easy way out because the store was freaking hard. <laughs> but, yeah. But at least I got the, the data that I needed to know what was up before, like you say, go out and buy 500,000 units. You better really, really, really know that people want it. I mean, we've been selling the jars for, over two years now and I'm still anxious placing an order for another 10,000 jars. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I hope like, do we have enough? How long will it take us to run through these? Um, <laughs> you know, you never know something's going to change. It's like you being freaked out ordering more granola bags. Like you're pretty sure people are going to still want these, but um, yeah, I'm always, always a little hesitant to like fully commit on stuff in huge volumes uh, just because yeah. things change so rapidly. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. So um, on a more personal note, I mean, I think when we first got connected, uh, it, it was, you know, something that I loved and, and kind of attached to that you were also sober many years past me. I'm only just past four, but uh, you've got a lot more under your belt. But I really looked up to you and um, was excited to see another person hustling this crazy entrepreneur world and able to do it without uh, booze filled evenings to cut the stress. So um, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about like your journey, me and, and all the folks listening um, about your journey into sobriety and what that has been like for you? Sure. So I um, got sober and I think it was like 2007. Yeah, it's 2007. And it happens to be 420, <laughs> 2007. I know. Crazy, right? Um, I had gone out with some friends and I lost a lot of time and 
I ended up at 7-Eleven at three in the morning and basically wanting to buy booze at the 7-Eleven and I knew everybody there and the guy's like, I'm going to have to call the cops if you don't leave because I was being really persistent because I had lost time from 10 a.m. till 3 a.m. And I have no idea to this day where I was, what I was doing. Um, I had it. Uh, yeah, I left my friends. I don't know, walking the streets. Who knows? I, I've always loved to just walk around neighborhoods. But yeah. um, so I got home that night, um, went to bed, woke up the next morning, and I just, something hit me really hard. And I was just like, I just started a job at the Four Seasons in Pastry, just had left um, a couple of jobs, at one at Nopa and then one at the Byright Creamery. And, you know, I had had... I had hurt myself there and um, like I, 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 reputation stuff from no, no, I, I basically had, had like torn my Achilles tendon running well, actually injured. <laughs> yeah. So oh. I, yeah. So I was like, okay, here's my, chance. Yeah. here's my chance to really kind of turn things around and really make sure that this sobriety and this life that I really want to make for myself is going to happen. And if I kept drinking, I knew it wasn't, I was going to fall back into not pursuing my pastry chef career and maybe just doing, you know, bartending and waiting tables and hosting and food running and all the stuff that I had done since I was 15. And, you know, I thought this is, it, I was in a new house. I had just moved in. It was the second day in this new house and I was on Lake street and my backyard was, was, mountain lake pretty much and it was incredible just beautiful and you know the presidio was my backyard and i just i loved where i lived and i just wanted to keep all of that and i knew that if i kept drinking i wasn't going to be able to keep all of that so i had a come to jesus moment where i was like you know what if i don't stop drinking i'm either going to die get arrested go to jail and lose everything so yeah and I had had problems before with drinking and I knew that it wasn't, it was time for me to stop. I mean, I started drinking when I was 13 and pretty mm -hmm. much didn't stop until I, that, you know, I got sober that day, but I basically made a commitment to myself that I was going to try it out. I didn't tell any of my friends. Mm -hmm. I didn't tell anybody at NOPA. I didn't tell anybody at Byright, nobody at the force or at the um, Fairmont hotel I told nobody. And I just went on this journey. I went to AA and, just walked into that room and it was like a light bulb moment where there were people like me who struggled in the same ways that I was struggling and just didn't know how to fit in. Mm -hmm. So, you know, drinking and, and that party lifestyle was, was how I felt like I fit in. And so I basically went into the rooms and never came out and I've been sober ever since. That is so awesome. Like, congratulations to you for all this time and for coming to that decision. I resonate so much with your story because I feel like um, there is sort of this like social sentiment that if you got sober, you had to have, you know, lost your job, gotten a DUI, you were sleeping on the streets, you know, just these like horrific, uh, well, ultra horrific stories, I suppose. <laughs> I think what happened to, to me, I cannot speak for, I think was horrific, but um you know, in our, in our own right. And like being able to decide when enough is enough for you and not, uh, not needing to go that far. Right. Like almost having the foresight of like, this is on a bad path and it's been this way for X number of years. I've tried X, Y, Z things to make it change and there's no difference happening. And, uh, you know, finally just choosing when our rock bottom will be, um, instead of trying to dig deeper, 
I, I also really find like this huge theme in people that um, made a decision to get sober, that it was sort of this like relief from coasting. Like you sounded like, you know, Foots just kind of like uh, easy on the gas pedal and you're just going along. And um, I felt the same way, like could have just kept on going, doing what I was doing for so long, but I just didn't have that drive. And for you going to follow the pastry career and um, for me wanting to go, you know, leave tech and get into desserts, which I love so much, find a way to make, you know, sweets my life and just did it. I think getting sober was like that energy to go out and freaking do it. So you have these bigger dreams, but if you're, you know, drinking to numb the stress or drinking and working for the weekend and all that stuff, it's just like, you don't have that energy to go out and really create something great. Uh, or at least, you know, if it's an unhealthy relationship, I know there are people out there that can can pull it together. But for me, that was just not going to happen. I, I didn't have the extra mental bandwidth when it was all filled with booze. Yeah, agreed. And I think people, I mean, for me personally, I, I don't think I realized how much drinking affected me mentally and with my anxiety and with, you know, work. Like I thought I was doing a good job at work and then I got sober and people, you know, I was food running at NOPA and people noticed that I, that something had changed mm. And I was like, yeah. yeah. And I was like, huh, this is interesting, you know? And I, I knew that yeah. I wanted to, to go into pastry. And I knew that if I was going to do that, I had to have a clear mind. And I had to, I had to have that drive and that ambition because it's a grind. It's not an easy, easy task. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we make really great entrepreneurs. <laughs> we have <laughs> our full brain towards it and uh, so much extra energy like to put put towards something good. Um, I was asked recently if I've ever been like, if my sobriety has ever negatively affected, you know, a business relationship or scared an investor off or something. And I was thinking, gosh, it's actually the opposite. Like I think an investor should be more excited to work with me for, um, you know, me being where I am in my life now and having gone through what I did uh, to be sober now as, as I make, you know, I'm like a super entrepreneur because I'm like up at six in the morning just because I'm not hungover and, um, you know, I can be. Um, so it's, it's actually a bonus for me in the workplace. Yeah, I agree. 100%. Really. So um, after getting sober, a big thing for me, you know, with dope was this idea that more people need to hear this message, stories like yours, stories like mine, and um, kind of an overall awareness of the need for compassion in our society and a little more understanding, be it troubles with alcohol or substance abuse or mental health. And, uh, you know, you were one of the first people I talked to who um, was really trying to do something to rope in um all of this, you know, support or giving back or what could we do to raise awareness into your company and uh, community before profit is something you'd shared with me. Can you talk a little bit about that and kind of where it's at today and, um, you know, what you've been able to do or want to do on that front? Yeah, I think there, I mean, there's still, there's still so much I want to do with that. I, I honestly don't have the bandwidth right now to, to do all of that in October when I lost my, mm-hmm. my, operations manager, it became, I was full-time again in the kitchen all yeah. the time. So mm-hmm. it, it was a little bit too hard for me to, to kind of do that, but there's still, there's still stuff that I want to do with community before profit and kind of still roping in, you know, other people who want to have that experience and want to have that, that chance of, Hey, I want to get sober and I don't know where to look. And I, I, I think it's really important for people to hear our stories 
And mm-hmm. that's, I mean, that's ultimately when I first went into AA and when I first went into the rooms, what got me sober was that my story was unique, but it wasn't different from anybody else's. And I think that that's, that's what made me kind of stick with it and be like, okay, if these people can do it, I most certainly can. And I don't need all of these, you know, numbing agents and these things. I, I need to kind of like feel everything that I need to feel. Mm-hmm. And for community before profit, just like throwing my story out there, there was so many people when I launched that site and it's still up, but it still needs a lot of work and it's kind of crazy looking, but, um, (laughs) but it's (laughs) there and it exists and that's what matters. (laughs) Totally. But I just, I think that, I think that there's a lot with a story and, you know, like I said, people reached out to me when I put that out there and we're like, Oh my gosh, I had no idea. Here's my story. Mm -hmm. And then it just created stronger bonds with my community and with people in my community who were struggling in that same way, who just didn't know what to do. You know, like one of my friends who I thought always had their, you know, shit together was like, oh my God, I read your story and I resonated with it so much. And I just like, I I need help. Where do, where do I go? And I was like, right here in my arms. I got you. Yeah. Yeah. Coming for a big bear hug. (laughs) Yeah. You know, we've got, you know, there's meetings around you. Let's find you ones that you like. I'll go with you and, and we'll make this work. And she's actually still sober. And then there's other people that have reached out since then and, and are not still sober, but they at least reached out and they at least tried it. And maybe Mm -hmm. it just wasn't for them, but I think you're just one contact point along the journey. Sometimes I think it's like a big, uh, it is a big journey of touch points that, finally make you realize you really need to need to stop or that you really, you know, have a problem and it's self-recognition. It's reading something online. It's seeing someone talk about it in a, you know, interview somewhere. It's, you know, all these different things. Um, yeah. But I, yeah, I think you should be proud that you get to be at least one, one touch point in, in those people's journeys. Heck yeah. I mean, I think there's yeah. going to be a thousand touch points and there were a million in mine. You know, I'd, I wouldn't be sober today had somebody at, you know, chow, not been like, Hey, what are you doing at night? (laughs) When you, when you work the morning shift, you come in not looking so great. And I was just like, smell bad. (laughs) I was like, Oh yeah, yeah, nothing. And I would go out with friends and keep it all together. But then I would go home and drink myself to sleep. And that was just like, people had no idea. Yeah. It's, it's such a personal thing. I think with, um, any mental health battles, alcohol, whatever you're going through, um, it really is is so private sometimes and such a internal recognition that like not everyone can see. Um, like you said, there's always those people uh, that you need to kind of tap you and say, hey, this, this doesn't seem good. They're seeing the the side of it that's not not looking so great. But yeah, there's always people when I first got sober, you know, people who hadn't seen those bad nights, those bad Kelsey examples were like, what? You're fine. You're so fun when you're, you know, partying and it's great. And la la la. It's like, okay, (laughs) but you didn't see how many nights that happened. And you didn't see me once I left that bar and went to the next one and, um, and on and on. But yeah, it's, it's great to have the, um, people who care enough to reach out and, you know, suggest a comment. I know it's a really delicate thing to talk to people about (laughs) their relationship with alcohol, but, I got a few scathing um, letters from my Nana when I was in college. I remember just like reading the note and then putting it under my desk. Cause I was like, I can't look at this, um, you know, with her just uh, asking and, and suggesting that I consider stopping drinking. And we had, it was another night of just like 
absolutely scaring the hell out of my family. I'd gotten lost in Tucson, hospitalized. Um, I was down visiting my brother and went to a party. And uh, yeah, it was a super bad night. And my whole family was like on the phone crying, trying to find me. And I got a pretty intense letter from my Nana shortly after that. Um, And uh, yeah, it's just takes enough people being like, what the hell are you doing? And then finally you look at yourself and go, what the hell are you doing? (laughs) Um, So yeah, very happy to be, be through all of that. And again, just awesome to have spoken to you about community before profit for what it is now. And, and for what you dream of it being one day, um, it was a big inspiration for me as I started to develop dope for hope and everything we've put together, both with yeah policies in the company to try and, and treat people that work for me like people and not uh, machines. Uh, So those kind of policies and then also raising money for nonprofits um, just felt like there's so many people out there doing good in the world that I could use dope as an engine to, to drive more funds there. Cause like you said, we've got limited bandwidth, so I can't do it all, but um, at least I can, you know, try and raise some money for good. So that was a a big inspiration. I don't know if you know that. (laughs) Oh, that's cool. Thank you. Yeah. So, um, I want to talk a little bit about mental health. Uh, what does mental health mean to you? Phone calls. <laughs> yes, phone calls for sure. <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, when you think of mental health, like what does it mean to you and how does it look as an entrepreneur? I mean, I think it comes in, in many forms. I think as an entrepreneur, I I think, you know, it's it's really hard if you have, like I struggle with anxiety and it's it's super hard for me sometimes to like keep my shit together when I'm talking to my employees or I'm on the floor because I can't, I can't keep myself together and I'm trying to keep all of this other stuff together. And I think it's, and then you have to also remember, this is the other thing. You have to also remember that there's people that you, that work for you that are struggling as well. Mm-hmm. There are so many people struggling right now and people that don't want to talk about it. And I always tell, you know, my employees, I'm like, I have one employee who just, you know, came in late, didn't want to, didn't want to work. And I ended up sitting her down and she had food poisoning every Monday and Tuesday. And I was like, you know what? It's like the food choices you're making. <laughs> <laughs> What's really going on? Over the weekends yeah. are not really helping you in your life. I was like, they're making you sick and it's making you not able to start a family, which you want to do so desperately. And it's hurting your relationships here at work and it's hurting your relationships probably at home. And that was one of the things where I like kind of took that compassion card. And then, you know, there's, there's other times when I have to be like, Hey, you know, this, this is a job and you have to take this seriously. And Mm-hmm. whatever's going on, I want you to know that we're all here for you and you can talk to us about anything. And mm-hmm. I think that that opens up doors for, you know, the staff and for people around me to, to, to talk about things that maybe they feel a lot of shame around. And mm-hmm. I think that that's what, you know, when you talk about mental health and when you talk about like what your feelings are about it, I wish that stigma was gone. I wish that there was a way you could tell your employers, Hey, this is what I struggle with. And, I can't do anything about it. The service industry is a perfect example. I mean, you can go from job to job. You don't have to stay at one job, you know, all the time. And mm-hmm. um, hold on real quick. Hey, Daniela. Yeah, no worries. Sorry. Um, you don't have to. It's okay. They're just talking by me. Um, you don't, you don't really have to um, 
I don't even know where I was going with that. I totally spaced. <laughs> okay. You, you I can, can edit it. that out. <laughs> <laughs> I can edit it out. No worries. Um, no, but I, I, I know where I was going with that. I think when you, when you open up that space for people to be able to talk mm-hmm. about their shame and the, and the reasons why they act a certain way and, and are a certain way, I think mm-hmm. it's, you're opening up a lot. And as I was saying, the service industry is a great place because you can just jump from job to job. You don't have to stay in one job. Like once you burn a few bridges in one job, you go to the next job. And it's like you hide behind this facade that you you, you know you give great service. You're, you're really smart. You, you know everybody's orders when they come to the bar. But yet you go home at night and you basically want to just drink yourself to death. And I think... Mm-hmm if we started talking a little bit more about, you know, hey, I saw you last night, I saw you last week at the bar. One girl, when I was working at NOPA, totally bailed off the bar stool at her work. She had come in for dinner and we weren't allowed to come in after our shifts, but we were allowed to come in in our days off. And she totally mm. was so drunk when she got there, she fell off a bar stool at like five at night. And everybody was laughing about it. And it's not something to laugh about. It's something to like really think about and to take into consideration because that's a cry for help. That's a huge thing for me. Like the reactions that everyone has, like I don't think people realize what a responsibility we all have to react the right way to these situations because it's, it's so often just laughed off or the next day, like, Oh my God, you were such an idiot. You did blah, blah. blah. It was so funny. Um, I just, yeah, I felt like I got that for so many years, especially through college where it just seemed like, well, it was funny or at least everyone got a laugh or it was a funny picture or, you know, um, or something. And then it's not so funny. No, it's, it's not funny. And I think that there's something deeper going on when somebody is, is acting as you and I both know and behaving that way. There's a lot, a lot going on inside that person that is making them not care about like what, what are they trying to get away from? Yeah, makes them not care about what's happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I am so happy to know you, and I absolutely oh, love your granola. <laughs> <laughs> um, you just are a really awesome light, and you are such a hard worker. It's just incredible. I mean, like all these years later, and you're still you know, there with your staff in the kitchen doing the damn thing. It's so awesome. <laughs> I want to make sure that everyone knows where they can get some of this bomb ass granola. Where can they find Nana Joe's besides like every store that's ever existed? (laughs) Uh, So in the Bay Area, uh, we're in all of the little local stores, plus all the Whole Foods in the Northern California region. We're down in LA in a few stores. We're in Air One and another store called Urban Radish, but we're going to expand a little bit more next year. And you can always get us on Amazon or nanajoes.com. Nice. What do you prefer, Amazon or if they order direct from you? Direct, of course. Yes, always good. But I Amazon's think, great too. <laughs> I know it's it's like an ease thing. People love to see Amazon because they're like, well, I know how to order through there, and it seems yeah. uh, seems simpler. But um, I feel like coming from being a consumer just two and a half years ago to being an entrepreneur now, I never thought about what commissions and cuts it takes to bring those services to life. So like what we're giving to Amazon to host it on there or, um, you know, Postmates and Uber Eats for food establishments with restaurants and, um, you know, fast casual stuff, like you're losing like 30% to these, these guys. So um, whenever you can, to all the listeners out there, try and order direct from your favorite suppliers. It helps us out and keeps us in touch with you too. I love being able to 
um, email people and, you know, keep you guys in the loop with new flavors and what's going on. And we don't always get the same access through every third party service that you order through. Some exactly. Yeah. Um, amazing. Well, I'll put the links to all of your awesome stuff and your Instagram, social media, anything amazing we'd want to share and, uh, you know, ways to get in touch with you if people want to chat. Um, for anyone out there listening who our stories resonated with, just know that you've got two very willing, um, open ears. You can email me directly and uh, I'm sure Michelle would say the same. So exactly. our contact info here. So if anyone wants to chat about maybe having a different relationship with alcohol or um, yeah, just talk about what's been going on in their lives. We are here and we have open arms. Um, thank you for joining me, Michelle. Of You're course. such a joy. I look forward to seeing you again soon. Definitely. Talk soon. Whoa. Thanks for listening to that whole podcast. You rock. All right, we hope you're leaving here today with even a smidge more inspiration than when you showed up. If you did, my job is done here. Subscribe to our podcast, follow us at Eat Dope, and if you're craving some cookie dough, and I mean, when are you not, order at dope.com. It's D-O-U-G-H-P.com, and use code SOBERPODCAST for 10% off. Have a dope day. Dope.